Well, one of the really blessed things of being part of a local church is getting to know people and know people well. It was fun for me coming in today, and I mentioned a football team to this guy, and I talked with this guy about his daughter being in college, and I mentioned this to a girl, and I, I talked with this about a person, and I just want to remind you what a huge blessing it is that believers can meet together and know each other and encourage each other. And sometimes in times of great abundance, we're not thankful enough that we have the opportunity to be together in this world. Because there's a lot of difficult things, as, as Justin prayed at the beginning. A lot of people are going through a lot of difficult things. But it is a gracious gift of God that we can be together and encourage and come alongside. I've uh, been praying for Pastor Mark and for Katie as they've traveled and for Pastor Keith, as he was in California most of the week at an RBNet conference, we thought Dwayne Baldwin was there too, but he was just there on video. He wasn't actually there. We were thinking this poor guy flying all the way from Serbia to California speaking and then flying all the way back, getting there in time for Mark and Katie, but he was just there by video in case anybody else was as confused as I was on that. Um, but I, as I was praying for them this week, I was thinking, it's interesting, you know, when I, when I was first at the church here, I liked Mark, I liked his preaching, didn't know him very well. And then you can tell when God is, is bringing you closer and closer. As I was praying, and I was praying pretty specifically, he preached probably about midnight our time here, but there it was in the morning. And uh, I was praying pretty specifically, and then I had this thought, is there Coke Zero in Serbia? Because my man needs some Coke Zero when he's really tired. And uh, I thought, it was kind of goofy, I was thinking about that, and I thought, this is when God's bringing your hearts together when you, when you know what people care for. And I know deeply, Mark's a pretty chill guy, but he deeply wants those students to be impacted. He deeply wants the church in Serbia to be impacted. He deeply cares for the Baldwins that really fight discouragement at times when they so much want the glory of God in the face of Christ to be exalted. And um, oftentimes they deal with, it, with discouragement. And uh, I just think that's a really gracious thing. So let's open in prayer, and then we'll get into this text of 1 John. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I think that our, our, our Pastor Keith Maddie could spend part of the week in California at this conference. He can represent us. He can network. He can connect. and He can be an encouragement and be encouraged by other pastors and missionaries. We pray for, for Pastor Mark and Katie as they're in Serbia. We prayed for the Baldwins in Serbia. Um, we pray that the gospel will go forth, that Mark and Katie will get enough sleep, that there'll be an encouragement to the Baldwins, that they'll be encouraged. And Lord, we ask this, and we ask it boldly, that you work mightily in this teeny, teeny body of believers in Serbia. Lord, we hear discouraging things. We hear apathy. Lord, there's a small group of people coming together to get trained this week, these men that are, that are, many of them are pastors or feel called to be pastors. Lord, let your Holy Spirit work on their hearts. May they submit to your authority. May they submit to your power. And may your word go forth with power all over that area. And may true heart change happen. And Lord, we ask this in the name of the all-powerful Jesus Christ. Amen. Pastor Mark had shared with us some purposes for John in writing the book, and he's referenced those several of the weeks that he has preached. I think Keith 
uh, Withrow mentioned them last week, but here are the purposes of 1 John. The first one is to promote joy. The second one is to prevent sin. The third one is to protect truth. And the fourth one is to provide assurance. And he said, and I agree with him, that that fourth purpose, to provide assurance, is really the main purpose of the book. Each of those purposes is in today's verses. And I, and I want to remind us, because the, the temptation that some of us have is to just ignore what's in the Scriptures. Ah, that's something for other people. And that might be you here today. And there's a temptation for others to say, oh man, I'm, I'm in trouble again. Or to think, oh, God's mad at me again. God's upset at me again. And that is, that is not the case in 1 John. The purpose of this is to promote joy and to check on things, absolutely. We want perseverance, but we want assurance. Yes, I can know Jesus Christ. So if, if you're one that feels beaten down when you read or hear Scripture taught, please know that when John wrote this, he says, I think in verse 4, I, I, I write these things to you that your joy may be full. This is not supposed to be a smack you on the head thing. This is a where am I with God? And in his graciousness, look at the word that he has given us so we can know him and know him accurately. In some previous sections, um, were in the sermons, they dealt with a series of tests to see if John's audience was truly of the faith. And then a series of tests to say, hey, are you, are you failing these, these tests of discipleship? And when you hear test, you know, don't be like a fifth grader that says, oh man, tests are bad. A test is just something that we can use to determine where we truly are at. So, you, you know, if you interact with kids at all and they hear the word test and it's, oh man, it's coming up and it's scary, it's scary. A test is not that way, should not be that way. A test just determines what you know. It's like um, we have an audit coming up with the state of Kentucky at my job. And I had a couple employees who were really upset about it or worked up a little bit. And I said, we try to follow all the rules, pages and pages and pages. An audit just tells us if we're missing anything and then we can correct it. We are trying, we are trying and are seeking to do what is right and accurate and good. And so when you hear the term test, don't be nervous today, but the section really is a, is a test of, of perseverance. It's really saying, who is the anointed and who is the antichrist? And you might have just heard antichrist and said, antichrist? Where, you know, where is this preacher guy going today? Well, what do you think of when you hear the term antichrist? Well, some of you might think of like some scary end times kind of guy, maybe a beast from Revelation, um, uh, man of sin, you might be thinking of that. You might be thinking of something scary from a movie or from a book, some terrifying ruler. You might be thinking abomination of desolation from Daniel or from Matthew. You know, if the Reformers heard that term Antichrist, they would be thinking of the Pope. And you can read Reformer after Reformer after Reformer that say, not that we think it's the Pope, we're convinced it's the, it's the Pope. Others, uh, church fathers, I found a church father, Tertullian, which he was right around the year 200, and he kind of threw out Antichrist to any, uh, any of his enemies or anybody that disagreed with him strongly. He'd bust out Antichrist in a letter. You know, you better toe the line with Tertullian or you're going to be the Antichrist. So the question today is, how do we understand this passage? Is anyone, as Eric read, is anyone who leaves heritage in Antichrist? Do we drop Antichrist on anyone who disagrees with me? 
Another question we might ask is, how does a person get anointed? Do we not need to study the Bible or listen to this sermon if we've already been anointed? Because those last few verses kind of sounded that way to many of us. Today we're going to see the differences between Antichrist and followers of Christ. And you're going to see it's, it's stark. It is distinct. We're going to see the differences in those two. Then, as, as John often does, he kind of has like this initial, could be the entire sermon. Here's the truth. And then he kind of says, but let me, let me tack some more information on. And that's what he does in this passage here today. So after we see these differences between the Antichrist and the followers of Christ, we're going to see the, the details of the heresy that the Antichrist believed. And then we're going to see two safeguards, two lovely, beautiful, wonderful safeguards that God has given for the believer. And we've sung about those even this morning. So if you're there in 1 John, we will start off in verse 18 with differences between Antichrist and Christians. And uh, John starts off, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. We know that the, the last hour, although we like to think of that as a future time often, and in our culture and in our world we often think, oh, that, that's the, the end times is this future thing, but we know that Jesus taught and the apostles taught, hey, it is the last hour right now. We see that in Acts we see that in Hebrews 1 when the writer of Hebrews says, hey, in these last days, he used to speak to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We look in 1 Peter 4 when it talks about, hey, it's, it's coming to the end. The end of all things is at hand. So don't be surprised when in 1 John, he says it is the last hour because we are living and have been living for 2,000 years in these last days, this time of last hours. And it says the Antichrist is coming. Well, anytime we hear anti, that means against. So, so what is the Antichrist? Because when I, when I say that word, we all have things pop into our mind. Uh, a little bit, we could go into Daniel, Daniel 10, 11, 12. It talks about this abomination of desolation, and it, and it just goes on verse after verse after verse of horrific things that are going to happen to Israel. And, and if you want to do some, some heavy reading, some heavy sledding, Read that this afternoon, and over and over, and it's going to be this bad, and this bad, and this bad. And we see some, some near fulfillment, we could say, of Daniel, when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, goes into the temple and slaughters a pig on it. And if you want to do some more reading there, read in the Maccabees. I encourage the, the teens last week to do some, some reading in First and Second Maccabees. Really interesting uh, historical writing of what was going on at that time and, you know, elephants co collapsing on people and spearing them and this and that and battles and all those things. But as far as a horrific time, the murders, the, the thousands upon thousands of murders perpetrated by Antiochus Epiphanes was a near fulfillment there of Daniel 11 and 12. And it was a horrific time. And we have a, a tendency living 2,200 years later to think, oh, that sounds bad. But if you were living at that time, you would be reading Daniel, and Daniel was written about the year 550 B.C., and so if you fast forward, you know, 300, 350 years, you'd be saying, this, this is how it was supposed to be, and this is horrible, and this is a result of rebellion against God. We also see some, some near fulfillment, you might say, or some fulfillment in, in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 says, hey, like, like our prophet Daniel said, 
there's this abomination of desolation that's coming, and it's going to be bad. And that's, you know, flee to the hills and, and, and all that talking that's in there in Matthew 24. I see fulfillment of that in about 66 to 70 AD when the, the fall of Jerusalem happened. And again, if you want to read some horrible reading, you, you, you read uh, General Titus. Uh, his father was, was Emperor Vespasian, I think. But General Titus goes in there and starts out, hey, you guys are supposed to, to give in and you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to just capitulate. They wouldn't do it. They fight a little bit. Things do not go well for Israel. There is cannibalization of people. There's not enough food. They, they heard if you go out and you then promise to, to love the emperor, they'll let you go. That, that word goes around Jerusalem at that time. Um, they're swallowing coins and walking them out, and the Romans figure out, hey, they're, they're walking out with that. So the Romans just start gutting people, and I mean, over and over and over and over, and you talk about abomination of desolation, you talk about Antichrist, it couldn't be, it couldn't be any worse in their mind at that time, and a horrific, horrific thing. If we um, fast forward a little bit, 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about this man of lawlessness, and that's what we typically think of when we think of Antichrist. But it's interesting, John is the only one that uses that term Antichrist. If you think about an, an end-time ruler, in Revelation they call him the beast, and, and in um, Thessalonians he's called the man of lawlessness. But that might be what you're thought, thinking of when you think of this one really bad individual. But, but broadly speaking, Antichrist is against Christ. This can be individuals, or this could be a world ruler, or this could be the one-time, big-time guy. Again, only John uses this term, um, but, they're, but it's someone who, big picture, denies Jesus is the Messiah, and they're deceiving and in opposition to Christ. Uh, Jesus talks often about false Christ, Matthew 24, Mark 13, uh, talking about signs and wonders that, if possible, they could they could cause the elect to, to stumble or to fall away. Um, but again, that is another group that opposes Christ. So when you're reading here in 1 John, don't think so much of that beast from Revelation or that man of lawlessness from Thessalonians. Be thinking, this is someone who is against Christ. They're opposed to Christ. Um, and then we have this shocking verse in verse 19. So you're thinking of this evil person, right? This terrible oh my goodness, how bad. And then verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, that they all are not of us. What is he saying right here? These used to be your friends. These are the people that when you walked in, you shook their hand and you taught their kid in Sunday school, and you had them over to your house. You might have had some, some good discussions with them at different times. These are people that might have been in your small group. And it says they used to be part, and now they're no longer part. And we have to read that and say, wait, what, what is going on right here? They used to be with us, and now they're not with us? So how do we know who they are? Well, up to this in the passage, all they say, you know how, they, how you know who they are? Because they're not with you anymore. They left you. They're not in your group anymore. There's going to be some more information coming, but up to this point, how do we know who they are? They left us. Are all people who leave the Antichrist? No. 
there are legitimate biblical reasons to leave a church. Um, for lack of time, we won't go into a, a, whole, a whole teaching on that. I will say that, that too often, and especially in our day today, the, the normalcy of church hopping is a really destructive thing for a local church. It is a really healthy thing for if, if when people have issues or problems or questions to work through them, not to just get mad and leave, or to just follow who, who the next coolest guy is. Um, there's such a, a, a tendency of that in our world today. Um, but that's not everybody that leaves. There are legitimate, real reasons to live. So we're not saying everybody who's ever left Heritage or any church that you've been part of is the Antichrist, because if it were true, then many of us would be Antichrist because we've left and been in part of other churches, right? Um, was church discipline involved? Now, church discipline is a, a hard, difficult thing, but is a righteous, biblical thing as purity is expected and driven by God for the church. Look in Matthew and look at several places in Scripture. We should be sorrowful in dealing with it. We should focus on reconciliation. But it's not really a church discipline situation here at all because it says they went out. It's talking about they, they removed themselves. They excommunicated themselves, if you will. There's really two important doctrines that are being dealt with here, and one is perseverance of the saints, and the other one is, the, is really the, the nature of the church. Perseverance of the saints, in Matthew 13, it says, he who endures till the end will be saved. Previously, in previous weeks, we've seen tests of love and tests of obedience. This is really the test of perseverance. And I, I wanted to read this phrase, salvation is not the reward of endurance, but it is the mark of the saved. So, if you endure as a believer, God doesn't say, okay, you've done enough, you've endured as you should, here's your reward, you can be a Christian. That is not what this is saying. It's saying this is, this is, the, this is the mark of the saved. This is a picture of the saved. This is what it looks like for those that are following Christ. Salvation is not the reward of endurance, but it is the mark of the saved. In 2 Timothy 2.9, when we're talking about the nature of the church, 2 Timothy 2 says that God knows those who are His. And we've all dealt with the heartbreak of having people leave the fellowship here and say, whether to us or to a group, I never believed or I don't believe. We were actually talking about in the youth group this morning as we were talking through the authority of Scripture in our Sunday school class. And we were talking about I mean, some have left the youth group and graduated. Some have left the youth group for, for other reasons, all good. But those that have left and say, I don't believe, it's heartbreaking. And I'm looking at some of those younger kids saying that, and they can, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Truly, the nature of the church is the called out ones, not attendees, not people with a good family history, not good people but those who are called out that are children of God. I, I wanted to read what the Baptist uh, Faith and Message 2000 says. Uh, this is from Article 5, and it's God's purpose of grace connected to perseverance in the nature of the church. I think this is really good. It says, All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet, they shall be kept by the power of God through faith 
unto salvation. But why do they specifically go out? So there's real comfort there. There's some, some doctrinal truth there on perseverance and on the nature of the church. But why did these antichrists go out? Well, you don't get to see it for two more verses. Stick with me. So here's some encouragement in verse 20. So we're going to see, we're going to see more. Again, John frequently does this. He kind of gives like, here's a circle right here. Here's basically everything that's going to be in this, in this section. And then he says, but let me give you a little information here, and let me give you a little bit of information here. So we're going to go through this section first as we talk about these differences between the Antichrist and the anointed. So what are the differences? Well, let's look at 20 and 21. It says, but you, unlike them, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is in the truth. What does the term anointed mean? What What does that term mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it would often be to be consecrated for a certain task. Um, you might be anointed with oil placed on you for a purpose of ruling, for leading, for doing a specific job. We could look at Aaron being anointed. We could look at Aaron's sons. We could look at Saul and David and Solomon and others, some prophets, being anointed for a task, being anointed for a job. And it's saying that you have been anointed, that believers have been stamped, have had oil placed on them, if you will. We could call this the anointing of the Spirit, if you will, the baptism of the Spirit, if you will, whereby we are, we are in God's family and we have a specific task to further the kingdom for the cause of Christ. It says we've been done this not by any mere person, but it says by the Holy One. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God the Father is called the Holy One of Israel. You know, Jesus is called the Holy One of God in Mark 1, in John 6, and in Luke 4. So we've been anointed by the Trinitarian Godhead here, and we've been given all knowledge. And these heretics we're going to see in a little bit, these Antichrist heretics are going to be shown that they say they have the truth, but he's saying, hey, you believers, the Holy One of Israel has given you truth, and that should give you comfort, and that should give you peace, and that should give you rest. The anointed are distinctly different than the Antichrist. So secondly, we're going to see some some details of the heresy. We've delved a little bit into this Antichrist idea. What are some details of the heresy? We finally get a find out what this teaching is. It says in verse 22, rather than you having the truth, these antichrists, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist. He who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father, but whoever confesses the son has the father also. It says, who is the liar in verse 22? But he who denies that Jesus is is the Christ, and that's the promised Old Testament Messiah. And we could go through, you know, Deuteronomy 18, 18, there's going to be a prophet like unto me, Moses is saying, and it's this promised Messiah. We could look in Isaiah 11, this root of Jesse, Isaiah 53, we could look at all the pictures of what this promised Messiah is going to look at. We could look at Micah and Zechariah, we could look at all these verses that point from the Old Testament, Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, he is not a mere man is God himself, and he is going to come and rule and reign and make things right. And these antichrists are saying, no, we're not, 
believing that he's the Messiah. Um, there's the, also the denial that we could look in there. It says, he who denies the son has the father. Now, we could go into a lot of detail. I, I, I tried to get some specifics from the first century. Um, specifically, if John was speaking to any one thing, and, and there really is a variety of things that he'd be speaking against. But much like in our day-to-day, when there's a variety of groups who would say, I believe in Jesus, but, and then they give you a, a skewed version, skewed from the scripture about who this Jesus is. Um, and we could look at Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian scientists and lots of little splinter groups that would be doing that. It would be the same thing at this time. There was one guy that I read, <coughs> excuse me, Serinthius, and um, he, he lived and wrote about 100 AD. So that's really early writing. And um, he was a, a Jewish and he called himself a Christian as well. And he, he said that basically, like, um, Jesus is this man, a really good man, but when the dove came down, it gave him some godness. And then it is just before the crucifixion, the dove must have left, and he lost his godness again. And he had, he had quite a following. But there's all kinds of other groups that either take Jesus' deity, that he truly is God, and they make it very small, or in their mind, they would make it very big, and they take away from his humanity. And one of the things that Scripture teaches over and over and over, which is often hard for us humanly to understand, is that Jesus truly is 100% God and 100% man. And we think, wait, how, how, how? And I have talked with pastors even that have said, well, that's 200%. That really doesn't work. Uh, Incarnation, my friend. And that's what the Bible pushes over and over and over. And if you're the person three chairs down from you at work, or if another student at school or if you yourself have a version of Jesus Christ that is different than Scripture, oh, please check yourself. Oh, please look at Scripture. Because it's not saying you meant well, but don't worry about it. It's not saying, but they, they were really sincere. Or, man, they knew all the hymns and they had Scripture memorized. They're really good people. I, I, they must be Christians. If we do not understand Jesus Christ correctly as the Bible shows him to be, what would it call us? Antichrist. And again, that is not a term that the Bible authors throw around lightly. It's a sobering, sobering thing. And this is not a thing for us to necessarily say, well, let's, you know, I got this neighbor, or hey, boy, there's, there's a guy down, the, down my row here. Or, Where am I? Do I try to mold Jesus into what I want him to be? Or am I saying, based on the authority of Scripture, this is who my Jesus is. I will work at wrapping my mind around it. I might not always understand every detail, but I'm going to seek to because this is who Jesus is. It's interesting in, um, and I'm going to move through a few different verses here, but, but if you look at chapter 4, 2, and 3, what did these antichrists believe? Probably at least some of them. It says, by this, this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has, co- has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And then if you go um, 2 John 7, which is probably just another page for you, in 2 John verse 7, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. 
those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. But, but what do these antichrists think of themselves? Turn to 1 John 1. Just back yourself up a couple pages. In 1 John 1, look at verses 5 and 6. This is probably what they would say they believed. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Probably this group of antichrists would say, yeah, I have fellowship with God. Yeah, I'm in good with God. Another verse, chapter 2, verse 6. It says, whoever says he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk in the same way that he walks. So this group of antichrists was saying, I walk with Jesus, I talk with Jesus, I fellowship with Jesus, I'm good. They were saying all the things that people say about being a Christian, but they weren't accurate with Jesus. And what does John call them? Antichrist. A few verses that we're going to have on the screen, I have four of them. This is Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. John 14, 6, and the first part of 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So many people in our world, every single one of us, take Jesus and make him into something he is not. And we have been given the mandate and the privilege and the expectation that we represent him accurately and that we understand him accurately ourselves. And if you're out here today and you're saying, well, I, I think I understand Jesus. I think I... Listen to the sermon. Study these scriptures. Come talk with me or somebody else afterwards and you also can know that you have eternal life. So let's look at this a little bit more. Let's look at, um, turn, turn back to the section that we're looking at, and let's review 23. And it says, <clears throat> no one who denies the Son has the Father. Point blank, that's where it is. But then he gives us some hope, and he pushes us to the next section. It says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Then he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Two safeguards for the believer, abiding and anointing. We've sung about and talked about each of those this morning, but be very, very, very careful not to be enamored with whatever is new, cool, whatever. I remember when I was a fairly young pastor, I was preaching through a section, and it had been, the church was not used to, like, expository preaching where you're preaching through the same book. They were kind of more used to like a, 
a topic here and a topic there, and you'd kind of hop around a little bit more. And um, I remember someone came up to me and they said, you know, it seems like we hear like kind of the same things each week. And, you know, you never want to be told when you're speaking, you know, you're kind of lousy at it. That's never your favorite thing. Like, really? Well, great. They said, and so I said, well, what's, what's repetitive or what's kind of boring? It's like, well, we, it's, it's getting back to the problem of sin and, and God's purposes and the answer to sin in, in Jesus Christ and, and the cross. And it's just really repetitive. Couldn't you teach us something like new? Was kind of, and I said, well, I want to do a good job with every passage. But, but the Old Testament points to what? It's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to Christ. And the New Testament is about what? It's about Christ, the chief cornerstone. That's, that's what it's about. That's why we come together. We don't come together here so that we can sit in a room that has basketball hoops. We don't come here together so our kids can go to Sunday school. We don't come here together merely to sing or to see friends. We come here to celebrate Christ. And when it says things like the, the, the how does it word it there? That which you have heard from the beginning, that's things like the Lord's table right here that Pastor Keith led us in. Those are the from the beginning things that it's talking about. It's pointing to us for the need of Christ on the cross and in the grave and risen and new life and forgiveness. Those are the old things he's saying to focus on. Don't be looking after what is cool because boy, there is a tendency and temptation to say, wow, I found a guy that tells me stuff I've never heard of before. Be really careful there. Be really, really careful. Because whether it's uh, blood moons or pointing out who's what, I was talking with Jim Golly a little bit before the service and I was researching some Antichrist. It was, it was rare to find an American president who hasn't been called the Antichrist by different preachers at different times. And we love to find people. Um, Gerald Ford never made it as the Antichrist. He must not have been, must not have been having too much action. But, but, you know, everybody likes, oh, I've got the answers to this, and here's this, and here's this, and here's this. Be careful. Be careful. That which you have heard from the beginning, look at what Christ has done. And verse 26 points out what is often the case. Those in error typically aren't content to just be in error and go hang out in the corner. We're going to try, try to draw other people in. And that's what this group is doing as well. He says in verse 26, I, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They're not just content to believe what they believe and, and go over there, but they're going to try to convince you as well. And, and this may have occurred to you in the past or someone's working on you now, but that's something that every believer needs to be aware of. And sadly, too often we can kind of think, I have my Christianity, I love my Savior, now just everybody leave me alone about it. But one of the blessings of maturing as a believer is as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are better equipped to give people an answer for the hope that lies within us. That you can be sitting with people at work and say, you know, they're, they're talking about a topic and they throw something out that's not biblically accurate, and we can graciously say, well, you know what's interesting about that is the Bible actually never says that. It actually says this or that. Or you can give a defense when someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, I'm starting to believe that this is true. We don't just say, you know, go be warm and well-filled. We just say to them, I love you. I care for you. I would love to have a Bible study with you on that. And if you think to yourself, oh, that's too hard, or they might try to convince me, what should that drive us to do? To say, I... I need to look into the scriptures. I need to be 
looking and reading good, helpful books that can gain my, help me gain an understanding. I need to be praying to God and saying, God, guide me. I need guidance from your Holy Spirit through your word. We need to be in church and not just a couple times a month, but we need to be in church so we can be challenged and encouraged and pushed. Sunday school and Wednesday night, those, those are all great opportunities to ground us and ground us more deeply. And one of the things I love about even, you know, whether it's the monthly Sunday evening service that we have or something, I like it that it's not just young people in there. There's a variety of ages. We have people that are in 70s and 80s, and we have people that are little bitty kids because you know what? Every one of us needs to be more grounded, and every one of us can encourage and challenge and be challenged. And that is a serious gift. And, and don't let that go out of your mind when you head home later in the day or when you go to work tomorrow. Be thinking, I have opportunity. And people really will try to deceive me. People will try to change my mind on what's true of the gospel. I need to be ready. I need to be prepared. John 8 talks about Satan himself as a liar and father of lies. And you've seen over and over and over in here that it's pushing there's truth and there are lies. And who are you with? He talks about this anointing in verse 27. He says, but the anointing, so if we talk about abiding and anointing, he says the anointing that you receive from him, so you didn't receive it from a mere man, you didn't receive it from your buddies, you didn't receive it from a book, you're anointed from, from the Godhead, but this anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, you might be reading that and saying, why am I even sitting in this sermon? Why is this guy even up there preaching? Because I don't need any of that. I just, I've got a connection with God, and so I don't, I don't need any of this. And probably if you've been a believer for very long, you've interacted with people that claim to follow Christ and say, no, I, don't, I don't go to church um, I don't really even need to be other believers because God and I have this connection and, uh, and, and we're good and I, I have all the truth and I need, I'm set. Oftentimes, they'll connect that with hunting or fishing or sports because they, they kind of combine all those together, but not always, not always. And they'll say, I, I have no need for this. But then as, as we read First John, and we've heard several messages there, is John doing any teaching in this letter? He's doing a bunch. I mean, I've even used the word test. He's saying, are you this or are you this? Because this is true and this is true and this is true and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. So he's teaching and he's doing it in a, in a fairly aggressive way at times. So does it mean that we don't need any teaching? What, what is going on there? There's really what's being pushed is we don't need to search for extra truth. We don't need to search for truth that nobody else has found, but I have found. We don't need to search for that thing that nobody else in this room found this little nugget of wisdom here, and I've never even heard of this before, but I figured out something, and I got an in with God that nobody else has. Again, that will make you popular, and there are mega churches all over the world that have some of that teaching or a lot of that teaching going on with them. But he's saying, you don't need new truth. You need the old, reliable, based on Jesus, I am the truth, truth, that is what you need. Uh, Christian, you have all the resources that you need. If you want to turn with me just quickly to John 14, I think that'd be a good text to close us on. Um, and we could read a lot in John 14, um,
But if you think through the Holy Spirit's indwelling and guiding, and basically if, if the Holy Spirit was being sent and, and, and Jesus is going to push this, hey, it's actually better that I go away and the Holy Spirit's going to come because he is the helper, he is the comforter, and he is going to help and comfort and guide the apostles and then he's going to guide them as the scriptures are inscripturated as they are written. And then we are going to be recipients of the word of God. And it's all through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit as well. That's kind of that, that combination or that, or that package is what's coming together. But um, John 14, and, and let's go um, 16 and 17. Uh, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, and that truth repeated over and over and over, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. They're antichrist. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he's saying that to the apostles, and that's true of every believer in here as well if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then even if you go maybe um, 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he talks, Peace I leave with you, my peace do I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says, I'm going away, but I'm, I'm sending the Helper, and I'm going to bring you to myself. And that should bring us serious, serious comfort. So in conclusion today, we've seen that the differences between the Antichrist and the anointed. And in your mind, you should be thinking these are distinct differences. The anointed is really another word for a Christian, for a believer, for a follower of Christ. Those who have repented of their sins and turned to God in saving faith, trusting his work on the cross, no works that they can do. And that's not something magical. That is something that you could trust Christ right now. And if you're a child of God right now, you can say, wow, I am anointed. I don't always feel anointed. But I am anointed. I am a child of God. The Holy Spirit is living in me. And if you do not have that comfort, you can have that comfort. No works to be done. Free, gracious gift of God. And those antichrists, they are those that had some truth, twisted that truth, and went out from among, it was a local body, I'm sure, but bigger picture, the universal church, and walked out. And if you know anybody who's in that place, believer, we can warn them and challenge them, but do not pretend that we're all in the same boat, because we are not. And you are encouraging them into hell, not warning them of peril to come. So the difference between Antichrist and followers of Christ, we looked at some details of that heresy and we saw those safeguards, the anointing and the abiding, the safeguards for the believer. So the questions I just want to ask in conclusion, am I anointed? If I am anointed, am I watching for antichrists or opponents to the gospel? Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, it says, not frightened by your opponents, which is a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Too often we think as believers, we shouldn't have anybody against us. We shouldn't have difficulty. We shouldn't have that lady at work that's needling us about this or that. But what does the Bible say over and over as we read it? 
There's people that are in rebellion against God, and they're going to be rebellion against God's people. And we shouldn't be shocked or feel like, wait, stop it. This is normal life for the loving believer. The last question, are you abiding? And I wanted to close with just the first verse, and we sang this song earlier, um, but I'm just going to read the first verse of Abide With Me. It says, Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. So it's saying, you know, evening is coming, maybe their life is coming to an end. So it says, my life is, is getting shorter, my life, my life expectancy is getting shorter, so abide with me. It says, the, dark, the darkness deepens, it's getting even darker. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, do we not look for people to comfort us in replacement of God at times? Do we not look for other things to comfort us? So he's saying, when other helpers fail and comforts, comforts flee as they will, help of the helpless. That's talking to God our Father. Help of the helpless. Oh, abide with me. And that's what I want us to do this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, you tell us through John, hey, little children, hey, little children, hey, little children, over and over in this letter. And a lot of this letter is saying, hey, little children, you, you are little children, aren't you? You are loving. You are growing in obedience. You are, as we look today, persevering. And Heavenly Father, we have the the, the temptation with perseverance to think, I've just got to pull myself up my, my bootstraps and I've just, got to, I've just got to knuckle it through here. And Lord, that is not the case. Our strength is made perfect in weakness as we rely on you. Lord, we are weak, you are strong. Lord, let us abide in you. I know throughout this group there are difficult things, challenging things, discouraging things. But Lord, let us abide in you and you in us and bring glory to your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.